Welcome to City Talks by Ford. Conversations with experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. Hey there, everyone, and welcome back to City Talks by Ford, conversations with the experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today and how they're helping create safer, more accessible and more sustainable mobility options for millions. I'm your host, Andrew Winston, advisor, speaker and co-author of Net Positive. And joining me on the show today is the general manager of the L.A. Department of Transportation and former National Association of City Transportation Officials President, Salita Reynolds. Today's show is all about the experiences of women, children, and lower-income communities on transportation and shared mobility. Salita takes us through the important findings of a recent study on these challenges. Welcome, Salita. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at the LADOT? Yeah. And tell us about the great streets and what that's accomplished. Sure. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks so much for having me on the podcast. So I am the general manager for the Los Angeles Department of Transportation. And what that means is that I am in charge of the management and operation of 7,500 miles of streets and alleys. I'm also in charge of about 37,000 parking meters on and off street. I also oversee permitting and regulation of four higher transportation like taxi cabs and more recently scooters. And I also run a transit system. So LADOT Transit carries about 22 million passengers a year. And although that sounds large, it's actually, uh, we're actually quite small compared to the county's transportation authority, which moves more like 400 million trips on an annual basis. So we have at LADOT uh, what I like to think of as you know, a a laboratory where we can sort of come up with new ideas and test them in a city that looks a lot more like most American cities look than, say, New York or Washington, D.C. You know, we look more like Houston. We look more like Cincinnati. We look more like Oakland. And that means that the things that we do here can have broad applicability And it also means that we have a lot of other places doing great things that we can learn from. So Great Streets was actually the very first executive directive that Mayor Garcetti put out when he became mayor in 2013. And at the time, he was in the process of choosing the general managers to run all of the departments. And I didn't know much about the mayor. I hadn't lived in Los Angeles at the time I was living in Berkeley, California, working for the San Francisco MTA. When he found you, what were you doing? I was working for the Livable Street subdivision of the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency. So I was responsible for all of the bicycle, pedestrian, traffic calming, and school safety implementation projects citywide. So you went from San Francisco to LA. Yeah, it's, it's you know, San Francisco is seven by seven. It's 49 square miles. It's, it's really, you can really put your arms around it. Los Angeles is not that. And so it was a huge intimidating challenge, but I knew when I saw that that was his first executive directive that we probably had a lot in common given the way that he thinks about transportation. Because what Great Street set out to do 
was to try and reclaim streets as public spaces, as true public spaces, which they are, of course. We all own the streets, pay for the streets. You know, when I say I manage and operate the streets, I'm just a caretaker who's here to try and use the tools at my disposal to reach these big policy goals around climate and equity and accessibility and public health that are laid out by the city council. And Great Streets really was a provocation. You know, Los Angeles, famously the car capital of the world. People still think about it that way. When I say Los Angeles, the first thing that pops into people's minds is probably traffic, maybe palm trees, maybe the Kardashians, celebrities, but most people think of cars and traffic. And so this idea that, you know, the first thing that this new mayor is asking from his department of transportation is to rethink the way that we use streets entirely was a really exciting sort of fresh take and new idea around mobility for a city like Los Angeles. That's really great. I want to jump into this report that you worked on. But first, we're going to be talking about inequities in in transportation. Can you just give us some perspective on what are the unique needs that women and children have that cause them to experience transportation in an inequitable manner? How does that happen? And what are are their specific needs? Well, I think it's, it's useful. I was a history major in college, and I think it's always useful to try and figure out how do we have the system that we have? How do we get here? And the way that we got here is there's sort of two major things that, that I would point to when we think about why does transportation in American cities look the way it looks? The first is something that happened under the Eisenhower administration, which was the build out of the, the national highway system, of the freeway system. And at the time, this was a huge accomplishment of American infrastructure and engineering. It was a marvel. And it also you know, set out to build the cities of the future, which were going to be based around individuals being able to drive their cars anywhere they wanted at any time of day as fast as they wanted. It was a key, it it sort of incited a a lot of other American values like independence and freedom and economic mobility. So we have this freeway system that got put into cities, but cities existed before the freeway system came. And so in order to build out this freeway system, which has a huge footprint, I mean, these are big, big pieces of infrastructure, what we would call very muscular infrastructure, other things had to go. And it was not a coincidence that the neighborhoods that got bulldozed in order to build out the American freeway system were low-income neighborhoods of color, Black neighborhoods, Brown neighborhoods, Jewish neighborhoods, neighborhoods of ethnic, religious, and racial minorities that didn't have access to power. And those legacies still live with us today in that the the folks who live in those neighborhoods experience extremely poor air quality. Kids miss school there because of childhood asthma. And some neighborhoods in Los Angeles are literally surrounded by five freeways. So there's sort of that decision we made that still lives with us today. And then the other set of decisions is about how we fund transportation on an ongoing basis. Most funding that we receive for transportation and transit in particular, in order to receive it, you have to prove that you are lowering congestion levels because it is about lowering emissions, which should seemingly be a good thing. But the way that transportation works in the United States is that the peak periods of demand on the system are in the morning from 7 to 9 a.m. and in the evening from 4 to 6 p.m. Those are the times when white collar nine to five workers are heading to and from work. 
And so the transit service that we receive funding for is clustered in those periods. And that's why you'll have a commuter express line or you'll have a, you know, a bus that comes every five minutes during the morning, but in the middle of the day, it slows down and it only comes once every hour. So you're saying the demographics are different for where the money's going. You're getting money going to those kind of middle upper class folks who are commuting yeah, and not getting it into the systems for the people who don't have a car, who can't, you know, who, who can't afford it. Yeah. So there's an environmental justice aspect to all of this, right? Yeah. And you, you know, the transportation system is like any other system. And when we talk about today, we look at bias in algorithms and we look at, you know, the, the sort of way that the tech sector skews white and male. And then you see that, you know, the bias in the algorithm maybe doesn't actually recognize, AI doesn't recognize, you know, people with darker skin, the transportation system is no different. It was designed and delivered by mostly white, mostly men. And that's that. So, so it serves their needs. Okay. But for anybody else, it sort of falls apart. And so your original question was, what are the needs of women and families and girls that are not being served? And what we see when we look at women's transportation patterns is that women, because they predominantly do unpaid household labor, have completely different needs than nine to five workers. They need to be able to get their kids to school in the morning. Then they need to probably do what we call trip chaining. So they need to run a bunch of errands. Maybe they need to go and pick up prescriptions because they are the caregivers for aging parents who live in the household. Or they need to go and go to the grocery store. And then, you know, in the afternoon, they need to get their kids from school. Maybe they need to get their kids from school to an after-school program. And then they might have other errands that they need to run throughout the day because they're supporting the household. And what we see when we look at the way the freeway system privileges people that own cars and the way that the transit system privileges people who work from nine to five, there's really nothing left in these transit deserts in the middle of the day, which is when women mostly need easy ways, easy, reliable and affordable ways to get around. And that's true in the evening as well. A lot of women are working second shift, third shift jobs where they need transit at, you know, off hours and it just doesn't serve them. It's interesting you said transit deserts, because as you were talking, I was thinking about food deserts and how that causes people to have to drive more if they don't have a supermarket nearby. So I want to turn to this study. The LADOT recently released Changing Lanes, a report that looked at these inequities, right? And this challenges for particular groups like women and children. What was the kind of catalyst for that report? What drove it? Well, actually, a few years ago, I got a call from a woman who was doing some research for her thesis at Harvard about differences, gender differences in transportation. And she wanted to talk to a woman who was in a leadership role in transportation. And so I agreed. But And as she's asking me these questions about how our system really is attentive to the needs of women, it occurred to me that, you know, we we really hadn't given that a lot of thought. And after reflecting on that, I came to the conclusion that, you know, even though I'm, I'm a woman and I've traveled in lots of different cities with children, without children, with my elders, without my elders, with a car, without a car. In transportation, you're trained, it's a technical field, and you are trained to only rely on quantitative data and information to be as objective as possible. 
and never to project your own personal lived experience into the decisions that you're making, which is probably pretty good advice in general. But in this case, that sort of disciplined separation had been a blind spot for me. And that was sort of the turning point where I decided that, you know, if anybody was in a position to at least call the question, it was me. And so I found some funding and working closely with our partners at Metro, who actually at the same time, coincidentally, were beginning their own inquiry about women's needs on their system. So what are the needs that women have when they're riding the bus and they're riding the subway, when they're actually on transit? And that has a lot to do with personal safety. It also has to do with the design of the vehicle and whether or not it's easy to you know, push a stroller on or hoist bags that you're carrying, or if there's safe places for kids to sit, et cetera. I thought, well, this could be a really complimentary study to instead take a step back and ask, you know, what are the need transportation needs of women and girls more broadly? And how are we doing in serving them? So what were the kind of major findings of going out? And really, it sounds like you just went out and asked women about their transportation experiences, right? We did. We did a little bit of both. So we did the more quantitative piece where we're looking at data sets that are available and we're looking at demographics and we're looking at all those things. But then we also identified three communities in Los Angeles that are a little different from each other. So Watts, low-income, predominantly Black neighborhood, Sun Valley, which is a low-income, predominantly Latino neighborhood, and then Sawtell, which is a medium-income, let's say, you know, predominantly white neighborhood to try and understand at the ground level, what were women experiencing? So we sort of, we did some community-based research that was really about understanding individual stories in addition to that more quantitative research. And what we discovered is that relying on quantitative data alone would warp the picture for us because what we discovered is that in Los Angeles, at least in these three neighborhoods, Women are either traveling a ton and they're using literally every form of transportation to get around that they can find, or they're not traveling at all because they are almost completely dependent on other people in the household to help them get around. And that's because another one of the findings we discovered is that there is a huge gender gap when it comes to access to smartphones and driver's licenses. So if we had just relied on the quantitative data, which tends to use averages, we would have taken everybody's experience and sort of, you know, smashed it together. And it would have given us a picture that, yeah, there were some things we could do better, but maybe all in all, we're doing okay. But this community-based research approach allowed us to really investigate all of the bookends, the ends of that spectrum, which is where women tend to live their lives. So the gender gap in driver's licenses was very surprising to me. The gender gap in smartphones was a little less surprising, but still dispiriting. What does that mean? You're saying like in a household, only the male has the cell phone. They have maybe one. Wow. That's right. And the thing that was surprising to me as well about that was that in Black neighborhoods, in Watts, for example, and in Sun Valley, in the Latino neighborhood we looked at, those gaps were wide. But when you got to Sawtell, those gaps were much smaller. So there's a compounding effect of inequities here. It's it's not just about being a woman. It's also about being low income and also about being black or brown. 
that creates a real barrier for people to be able to access opportunity and access the transportation system that we've designed. And one last piece I'll, I'll point out is, you know, even for simple trips, so we ask people, you know, about their trip to the grocery store and how long it takes them. And women, for women who are doing that trip probably more often, it's taking them longer than 45 minutes to just go to the grocery store because they're having to rely on buses or maybe they're taking their bikes or maybe they're having to do a lot of other things in order to just get to the grocery store. And when it takes you 45 minutes to go to the grocery store, there's actually a bunch of stuff you can't buy. You can't buy things that melt, you know, you can't buy anything that's not going to be super shelf stable. So it has deep effects on, on people's lives. And when we ask them the trickiest question of all, which is what are the trips that you're not taking because the transportation system doesn't provide an option for you? What women came up with were things like, you know, I, I live five miles from the ocean, but I've never been to the beach. Mm. I don't get to see my son who lives in another part of the county because it just takes too long for us to, to travel to each other. I don't get to go to church every weekend because it's such a long haul that I have to wait until somebody else can give me a ride. I thought you were going to say they weren't going to doctors also, or they weren't getting mammograms and then, you know, it's a kind of this compounding. Right. Well, it seems like what my takeaway was people are just doing everything they can to make those essential trips, even though transportation actually is one of the reasons that I think it's the first or second reason most cited for why people miss medical appointments, but they're exhausted. They can't make all of these trips. When you think about what gives you real human dignity, what gives you sovereignty, what, what makes up a life? you know, what you look back on and remember, it is all of those other trips that they're saying they cannot make because of our transportation system. Yeah. To me, that is a giant failure because women doing that household labor, they have such broad impacts on our neighborhoods and families and on our city. And being able to contribute to their well-being and their sense of mental health by improving the system that we can deliver, to me, feels like the way that we can actually improve our city. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned not getting to the beach, not seeing family. I mean, both nature and human connection are two incredibly important parts of well-being when you survey people yes. around the world, right? You need, you need both of those. So they're kind of getting deprived, right? That's right. So what did the study's findings tell you or indicate about the design of transportation and how to change it to better meet these needs? Well, I think there are a few things, you know, one of the ones that I'm still thinking about and wondering about is, you know, when you look at that driver's license gap, where in Watts, you know, 74% of men said that they have driver's licenses, but about 52% of women said that they had driver's licenses. That's a significant gap between men and women. Whose job is it to close that gap? And, you know, is that the Department of Transportation's job? Is it some other kind of social services agency's job? Is it, is it some combination of those two? Does it, does it even exist? Is anybody taking it on? Is it a real gap or is it just in that one neighborhood? And what are the reasons for it? Mm. So, at, you know, there are initially there are like any good research report, it just prompts a whole bunch of other questions. 
So we've got more work to do at, at a minimum to understand some of these gaps more intimately. But once we understand those gaps, I think the other thing it points out is that we must improve the transit system that we have, both in terms of its frequency, its reliability, and how safe people feel on it. So one of the first things we did was to pilot an on-demand stop program for non-daylight hours. So if you're riding an LADOT bus and it's dark out and you want to get off the bus a few blocks before the official bus stop, you can ask the driver to pull over and let you off and they will. And that's to improve both women's sense of personal safety. So maybe they don't have to walk quite as, as long to get to where they're going at the end of their trip in the dark, but also just your sense of physical exhaustion. You know, if you're on the bus and you're carrying a bunch of grocery bags and you've got two kids, even cutting a half a block out of your walk is significant for your own sort of, you know, mental well-being. So there are things like that that we have to do for the transit system. But I also think that in a city like Los Angeles, where the land uses are spread out, where even when you solve the food desert problem, it still takes somebody, you know, over 45 minutes to make a simple trip to the grocery store. I think it is asking us to be more creative and expansive in how we think about the definition of public transit. So traditional public transit is a fixed bus route that runs above ground and sits in the same traffic as other cars. Maybe you've got a bus only lane if you're really lucky, and that's a critical part of what we need to do to improve transit. Or maybe you think of it as a rail system or subway system. But what if we thought about car sharing system as public transit? What if we thought about bike sharing as a form of public transit? And what if we could then open up the idea of what we could fund using public transit dollars to way more than just the traditional either fixed route buses or rail? Those remain the most efficient ways to move large numbers of people along a trunk. But in L.A., the, the trunk has, you know, millions of branches and finding opportunities to expand the reach of public transit or to shorten people's trips for necessary errands by creating a distributed system of sort of neighborhood serving mobility, like electric vehicles that are in a car sharing pod or electric bikes that maybe even have a cargo option where you can bring your kids on them. To me, that feels like an obvious first step and something that we can clearly do using the tools that we already have and funding that we can already access. So, you know, designing, changing the design of the street so that you have a safe place to ride your bike, especially if you're a woman. There are other gender studies about women on bikes. Men outnumber women on bikes in American cities by about three to one. So why is that? And how can we build infrastructure that women feel comfortable using? And then putting in those bus only lanes so that when you do get to the bus stop, it's the fastest and most reliable option and then making all of those things either free or providing people what we call a mobility wallet so that they can access them without needing a bank account or a credit card mm. is the kind of universe of things that I think would directly address some of the things that we heard from women in the study. Well, the, that gap in driver's licenses and transportation is kind of fascinating because it, it actually shows me how much it does suppress the vote if you take away voting booths 
and demand of a voter ID. There's just going to be women who just can't vote. Yeah. Um, and it really ties to kind of a tax on democracy. You know, these things are all, all really connected, right? There's inequities for these communities. Yeah. And I mean, not just voting, but think about all of the things that we tie to identity in the United States, your access to all kinds of things, you know, all kinds of social programs, medical assistance. I mean, how many times a day do you get asked to show your driver's license or maybe a, a, how many times a month, you know, when you're trying to to get access to all kinds of things? You can get gov- other forms of government ID, but it really does underscore just how locked out of society that you are if you don't have a driver's license. Yeah, it's amazing. I hadn't thought about, you know, getting on a plane, obviously, but there's so many things right. where we, they do ask us to take that license out. So you had a bunch of kind of what ifs, here's the things we'd like to do. Is there, you know, are there mechanisms being put in place in LA or some of these things starting to move? Is there funding for for these kinds of changes? To my knowledge, there is not yet funding available at the state or the national level that is specifically tied to improving transportation outcomes for women. So we will need to do that using our own internal funding. So to start, uh, this year in the budget, we are asking for a relatively uh, modest amount of money, about $3.5 million, to get some of these things off the ground. Because I'm a big believer in figuring out how do we tweak everyday decision-making to move the arc of things in the way that we, we want it to go. So in other words, what are some criteria that we could begin to apply to our existing transportation projects to figure out how well they're addressing the transportation needs of women and girls? So rather than trying to, you know, advocate for new funding streams, which we will also do and need to do and hope we can do, what about all of the money and all of the projects that we have sitting before us right now? And what about, you know, looking at some of those projects and trying to figure out, do they, do they bring forward solutions that would be meaningful for women or do they just make the status quo a little bit better? So, you know, redirecting existing projects or redesigning existing projects is something we can do right now, but that costs money to go back in time, to go back and and do those things and develop those criteria. In the meantime, the pilot that I talked about, the on-demand stop pilot, we'd like to make that more permanent and we'd like to expand some of the other transit services that we have that are a little more flexible. So we have a system called LA Now which is uh, something called microtransit, which is a, a new form of public transit that's sort of like if Super Shuttle and Lyft like met and went on a date and then got married and had kids. So it's a you know van rather than a single car that you call and you know it sort of consolidates, it looks at where the demand is on the route where and then it changes the route can change based on the demand. And you can get picked up and dropped off a little closer to your destination, matched with other people who kind of want to go in the same places that you want to go. All right. We're coming to the end. Let's do the lightning round. A few quick questions with your top line answers. So what do you think COVID has done to these issues? And what are the changes that came from COVID? Give me like one or two that you think are going to remain and affect all of this. So I think that we know that, that a lot of women dropped out of the workforce during COVID. And we're, I'm guessing, 
uh, based on the labor shortages that we see everywhere that they haven't returned. And so I think that that means that those in the middle of the day trips, those off peak hour trips, there's probably even more demand for them now than there was before. I also think that central business districts that relied heavily on, you know, high rises full of workers and all of the industries that the, and, and vocations that supported them, whether that was, you know, the coffee shop downstairs or folks who clean the building, folks that keep up the plants, all of those support services, those central business districts are, I think, destined for some significant changes. And I don't think that means that people are going to move around less or that that's going to solve traffic. I think it's just going to shift things around so that we're all going to want to have options to travel better in the middle of the day rather than just in the morning and evening. Some of those midtown buildings could become housing, right? So there's just more walking. They're living closer to work. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. So what are some other organizations that our listeners should be aware of that are looking at these inequities, that are studying these issues? Any any other resources to point them to? Yeah, actually, I think there's a local nonprofit here called Investing in Place, was doing some fantastic work around an initiative they called Moms and Mobility, hmm. really highlighting the stories of women and just trying to get around and get through their daily paces on our transit system. And they continue to do exceptional work in sort of highlighting those things. And then Metro, actually, the new CEO of Metro is named Stephanie Wiggins. She was one of the leaders of the gender equity work that Metro did. She has been a fantastic partner to date, and I'm really looking forward to combining our resources to do some work around gender equity and transportation in LA. Great. That's very helpful. All right. Final question we're asking everyone. If we look out our window in 20 years, What can you expect to see in the cities and in these regions that are facing these inequities? What do I expect to see or what do I hope (laughs) to see? You know, there are very differences. Tell tell us what you hope to see. What I hope to see are thriving neighborhoods where women have achieved a level of agency and community happiness that allow them to live thriving lives and that has ripple effects that benefit everybody. You know, I think that one of the things that we sometimes get caught on when we're talking about gender issues is that it's somehow a women's issue, but it, it absolutely is not. It, it's an issue for all of us. If half the population is really struggling, then imagine how much better off we'd all be if that weren't the case. You know, I'm hoping that I don't see children getting injured and killed in traffic crashes. I'm hoping I see beautiful streets that have a lot of shade on them and that where people can walk, can be together, can be with their neighbors, that have beautiful protected bikeways on them, that are really places for people to thrive. And that changing our our streets is the way that we really change the planet. Well, that's a beautiful vision and you're the right person. You're sitting in the right kind of job to help make that happen. So, Salita, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to City Talks by Ford. I want to give another special thank you to Salita for showing us why there's reason to be hopeful when it comes to safety and gender in our cities. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. You can follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Andrew Winston, and thanks again for listening to City Talks by Ford.